Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I am Dr. Louise Kugler, a general practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Abby Basket about breastfeeding and primary care tips and tricks for general practitioners. Abby is a paediatrician and an international board certified lactation consultant. Abby works in the public system as a paediatric emergency specialist at Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland and also in private through Babyworks in Auckland where she sees both baby problems and general paediatric problems. Welcome Abby. As GPs we often have breastfeeding mothers come in seeking our advice about difficulties they're having feeding their babies. Often worried they aren't producing enough milk and worried their babies are hungry. Some GPs haven't had a lot of experience in this area. Today, Abby will talk us through some practical tips and tricks for helping these women to continue breastfeeding. Breast is best. We often hear this, Abby. I wonder if you could comment on this, please. Well, I think it's fairly well established that uh, breastfeeding is the best possible feeding outcome for all babies. And the WHO um, recommends exclusive breastfeeding until around six months. Um, and this is for a number of reasons. Um, Formula-fed babies, when we look at large populations of babies, have higher rates of um, communicable diseases like gastroenteritis, pneumonia, otitis media. They're hospitalised more often and they have poor outcomes neurologically and in other areas as well. However, we all know of cases where babies haven't been able to be fed by breast and it's always important to feed a baby um, in whatever way you can. I wonder if you could just talk about the benefits of breast milk physiologically. So breast milk is a very complex uh, liquid. It has, if you look at a list of ingredients in breast milk compared to formula, you know, breast milk has maybe 50 to 100 ingredients that we know about and other ones are being found all the time, basically. Whereas formula is effectively a, a sort of a dead milk. It's um, a cow's milk protein that's had some things added to it but the live living cell elements of breast milk can't be replicated so and all the um, immunoglobulins and the things that are destroyed by pasteurization process in formula are not there. Um, it has different types of um, growth hormones and also it has, it's a very complex um, living cell system um, of milk and it changes as well, so it changes for the stage of the baby, it changes um, de determined by what mother is exposed to herself, it will respond if you're, if, as a breastfeeding mother, if you're exposed to an illness, your body will produce immunoglobulins and that is excreted in your milk. Um, so it is really, I see it as being part of a newborn baby's immune system. So if you remove breastfeeding from that baby, you are actually compromising the baby's immune system in one respect. Yes, there's a lot of talk about gut flora and the microbiome. Correct. So um, even small amounts of formula introduced into a baby's diet alters the gut flora uh, and probably for a week or two, like if you, if you give baby a day or two of supplementation with artificial milk, the gut flora changes and will remain different to an exclusively breastfed baby even if you reintroduce breast milk for probably two to four weeks after that. And you're right, there's, it's an evolving area and we don't quite know what effect the um, 
gut flora has on development of chronic illnesses and other things down the track, but I think that's going to be something that we hear more and more about in the next few years. When we have a woman who comes in, what are the important things in the history to ask her? So it depends what she's presenting with primarily. So women that come in with breastfeeding problems to see me, they have a number of different issues and I think it depends what they're presenting with. So the common presentations I would see would be pain, so ongoing breastfeeding pain, and I think the history for that woman is quite different to say, and the other common presentation which I see is faltering growth and um, possible poor supply of breast milk. There are other things that I see commonly, but those are probably the top two, would be pain and supply issues. So if it's a pain issue, then that's really quite complex. Um, and there are a lot of maternal factors that contribute to pain, and there are a lot of baby factors that contribute to pain. So maybe we start with the uh, maternal factors. Um, so if you think of the breast as a whole, there's, if you look at the outside of the breast, there's any kind of dermatological condition that affects the mother may affect her nipples and cause pain. So I've seen women with eczema or um, forms of dermatitis around their nipples that cause pain. Um, you can get infections around the nipples and that can be caused by um, all sorts of different organisms, but commonly candida or um, bacterial infections, but you can get herpes on the, on the nipples. Um, and then the actual structure of the nipple can contribute to pain. So if you think about it, it's a, I like to think of breastfeeding as a jigsaw puzzle of all the pieces fitting into place. So the shape of the nipple needs to fit with the baby's mouth, the baby's neurological stage and ability to coordinating breastfeeding needs to be in place, the mother's ability to hold the baby in the right place and her technique. All those factors need to fit in. And if you imagine visually a, a jigsaw puzzle, you can have one piece that's a little bit out, but if you've got more than one, or maybe you've got three pieces that are out, the whole thing is probably not going to hang together. So you need to kind of think, think it through logically. So the mother may have, maybe she's got really large nipples that don't fit the baby's mouth or inverted nipples and that's causing her pain because she can't get an optimal latch. Um, and then the baby's mouth, obviously um, tongue tie is a big factor in nipple pain. If the baby has an obvious ankyloglossia and can't extend or elevate the tongue sufficiently to get the nipple in a comfortable position then the mother will have pain and probably trauma in her nipples. The baby's efficiency at being able to coordinate, suck, swallow and drain the back breast well, that, could, that can contribute to pain. There are all sorts of factors and then there's also, there can be functional pain associated with breastfeeding, especially if there's an element of postnatal depression or um, we know that women that have got trauma in their past may have um, difficulty establishing breastfeeding and may have pain around breastfeeding and letdown. So it's a really, it's a really complex history that needs to be taken through. Um, you need to watch a feed and just look at the position, whether the mother and the baby look comfortable. You need to examine the woman's nipples, look for signs of um, infection or abnormality around the breasts and then especially the nipple tissue. And it's really important to examine the baby's mouth. So have a look inside the baby's mouth, have a look at the 
tongue for a start, see there's an obese frenulum and what the resting position of the tongue is just when you open the mouth. So when you open the mouth, the baby's relaxed and maybe asleep. The tongue should be resting mid to upper in the mouth towards the palate. If the tongue is stuck down and then you open the mouth and obviously the, the tongue doesn't elevate or extend, then there is, then have a look under the tongue and feel for um, a frenulum. You need to feel as well as look because some frenulums are submucosal, you can't necessarily see them just by looking. And then also look at the baby's tongue itself, see whether it's coated, if it's got any thrush on the tongue, that could be an indication that the dyad, the breastfeeding dyad has, has candida. Um, and then also the shape of the baby's palate. So if the baby has a very high palate, especially if there's a degree of tongue tie, it's going to be much harder for that baby to get the nipple up and back because of just the position of needing to get it higher and um, the tongue being short and fixed. So that will bring nipple pain and also the degree of retronathia that the baby has. So all babies have some retronathia but if there's a setup there with a bit of retronathia, a little bit of a tongue tie, the palate is high, maybe bubble shaped, the woman's got maybe slightly inverted nipples, then you can see that that's probably not going to be a good fit and that there might be a problem um, with positioning and comfortable latching that could be contributing to the pain. Um, and then make sure with pain it's always really important to screen for postnatal depression so you can use the Edinburgh score or something similar um, and just make sure that you're asking questions about mood or in what medications women are on. Um, the other aspect of nipple pain that's important to talk about is the, the quality of the pain So, and the timing of the pain. So if, if there's pain during the feed, um, that's more suggestive of a poor latch. A lot of women with pre-existing trauma to the nipple will go on having quite a bit of pain at the initiation of the latch just because if you imagine the nipple, you know, it's got to be scooped in over the hard palate and if you've got a raw area in your nipple, that's going to hurt but then usually it becomes more comfortable once the baby has got the nipple in a comfortable position. If the pain is occurring outside of breastfeeding time, like when the mother is out having a walk or coming out of the shower, that is more suggestive of um, what we call Raynaud's phenomenon of the nipple. And it's just, it's a vasospasm of the nipple. And sometimes you ask the woman, that usually they haven't done it, because why would they? But if you have a look at their nipples, they will see either like a purple nipple or a white nipple. Um, and it, it's very painful. Um, and also the different type of quality of pain is also important. So at other, outside of, of feeding time, you may get a deep or burning pain deep in the breast and that's suggestive of a deep candidal infection. So treatment really depends on what the primary problem is, obviously. If there's a tongue tie and there's nipple pain and the baby is over, say, four or five days old, I think it's worth advocating for that woman to get the baby's tongue tie treated. Um, it's always worthwhile explaining that the tongue tie may help, but also may not help, depending on how important the other parts of the jigsaw are. So by fixing a tongue tie, you're fixing one small part of the jigsaw. Um, but if the rest of the setup is still not in the right place, it's not necessarily going to make the whole thing hang together really well. Um, if there's a problem with infection, then it's, it's appropriate to treat with an antibiotic such as the cephalosporum or flucloxacillin to treat a staph infection. Or with a candidal infection, if you think that's a problem, then it's usually better to start with topical treatments and treat the baby's tongue as well. And then in resistant cases, you might consider, consider oral fluconazole. Um, in women that are resistant. Often the most important 
thing with with nipple pain, especially in the first week or two, is a good lactation consultant assessment and proper latch, latch technique. Um, but I find usually when women are coming to see me and probably going to their GP, they've probably been already through that, but it's worth checking that that has happened and they've had good help in that department. For Raynaud's phenomenon, um, the nifedipine works really well for some women and you can look up the dose um, on one of the protocols that's listed in the resources. I had a question, Abby, about yep. mastitis and yep. infection. Um, the BPAC guidelines suggest not using antibiotics for the first 24 yeah, hours. Correct. I wonder if you can talk us through yeah, that. I think that's reasonable um, if the woman doesn't seem toxic. Um, so most protocols recommend breastfeeding off the affected side as much as possible and maybe expressing off the other side if, if you need to and using NSAIDs and paracetamol. Um, and if it's not resolving in 24 hours, then you need to move on to antibiotics. So I think, I think that's, that's reasonable. And again, when you have a woman with mastitis, you need to look carefully at the um, nipples for trauma and go through all the other things we've just talked about. Some women will get mastitis with no evidence of nipple pain or trauma, but um, it's rare. I think most women do have some trauma that's seeding uh, the infection from the nipple. And you've mentioned um, a lot about tongue tie. There's a lot of talk around tongue tie and how it's treated. So I wonder if you can comment on the various methods that are yeah, available. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to comment on that briefly, but to be honest, that's a whole other podcast um, of itself. It's a very, very complex issue and controversial, and there's lots of different opinions on on what should be done there. And um, not very good, there's more, more evidence, but there's not fantastic evidence. There's no Cochrane review on tongue tie yet. I think there's one underway. Um, but I think the rule of thumb, there's a couple of points that I think most people are in agreement about, which is that not all tongue ties need to be treated. If you've got a dyad that's feeding perfectly well, but the baby has an obvious tongue tie, you don't need to just reflexively treat it. However, is, if there is obvious nipple pain and trauma and an obvious tongue tie, then I think you do need to fix the tongue tie. Um, I also think tongue tie is overdiagnosed by a lot of lactation consultants and midwives. Um, and it's sort of being confused with a normal spectrum of what tongue frenulums look like. And I think we might be over-treating them at the moment. Um, and it's often worth just watching in the really early days just to see what's happening. Um, and whether there is an issue or not. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that, Abby. Um, so just moving on and talking perhaps a little bit more about the infant factors for pain and um, when we're assessing a baby, what we're looking for and wanting to assess. Okay, so I think I talked about the shape of the mouth and the, and the tongue. Um, and then the, the other major thing is just the general look of the baby. If the baby is vigorous, has normal tone and is able to initiate and maintain a good suck, swallow, breathe reflex. That's what babies need to do, which is actually quite a complex thing neurologically. And some babies, especially ones that are late preterm or slightly neurologically abnormal for whatever reason, may struggle with that. Um, other babies, if they're jaundiced, that may make them a bit sleepy and that makes it harder for them to uh, maintain breastfeeding long enough to get nutritional supply. So um, lactogenesis 2 is what we call initiation of breastfeeding after birth and it's basically um, a response to increasing prolactin levels in the bloodstream after birth. And then after that supply is maintained 
by the sort of supply demand equations. So draining your breasts um, frequently and efficiently brings more supply and not feeding for periods. For example, if you're separated from your baby, will decrease your supply short term and then it can be increased again if you, um, again, with your baby and feeding on demand. Um, so there are, um, there are, again, there are factors related to both the mother and the baby that affect supply. So maybe just starting with the baby. If the baby is not an effective pump for whatever reason, maybe they're late preterm, they've got a tongue tie, they can't efficiently drain the breast, um, they've got a cleft palate, they've got jaundice so they're really sleepy, you know, they've been unwell. Um, all those things will mean they're not efficiently pumping at the breast and so they're not being an efficient drain and so the supply demand equation is not being met and so supply will not increase. Um, and then what often happens is the baby is not meeting their nutritional needs so they haven't got quite enough energy to have a vigorous latch and drain and then you get into a kind of cycle of um, a tired baby who's not getting quite enough calories and then is, is even less able to get on the breast and really trigger good supply. And then in women, there there are a few things that affect supply, um, and it is quite a complex area which is not really well understood. But we do know that there are factors that increase your milk supply. So um, hypothyroidism will, will decrease your milk supply. A large peripartum hemorrhage will decrease your blood supply potentially. Um, there's some some thought that um, insulin-dependent diabetes may have an effect on supply but the main one is often separation around the time of birth so if you have a baby with jaundice who's been removed from you to go under lights and there's maybe been supplemented because people think that that helps with jaundice um, that means the baby's got two reasons or the diet has two reasons for the supply to falter one it's been they've been separated from each other so the baby is not feeding on demand and then also the baby has maybe been supplemented with artificial milks so that's interrupted the supply demand um, equation as well um, but there are probably other factors that also contribute to um, poor milk supply that we don't know. Um, so Abby, we've got a mother and a baby who have come in to see us. How can we assess this child or baby and work out if they are actually getting enough? So the first thing to do is to look at the weight of the baby, obviously, and the growth chart. And most babies, it depends on the age of the baby, but most babies um, track along a line. They may change from birth, so some babies... Um, track down and then follow a line and other babies may um, move up to one, a different percentile that they were born on. Um, so I'm assuming the baby, if the baby's around four to six weeks old, that's what you probably what you need to look at. Otherwise, um, if it's in the first couple of weeks, then you're looking at whether or not they're still losing and whether or not they've regained birth weight. Um, so that is the, the, but weighing the baby is and seeing weight gains is the most um, reassuring and um, sure way to know that the baby is transferring milk and growing. Um, otherwise, uh, other indicators are the outputs that the baby's making. So if a baby's having wet nappies, you'd expect a baby to have a wet nappy for most feeds and possibly more than that. And in the first three to six weeks, although it can be variable, most babies will have a small stool. Um, with most feeds, or at least a f good few times a day of mustardy yellow um, stool. Around six weeks it can change for some breastfed babies, and babies that are growing really well may stool a lot less frequently than that and still, still be normal. 
And then other indicators that there's inadequate supply are feeling of fullness when you haven't fed and leaking milk from one breast when you're feeding off the other, the baby spilling milk after feeds and the baby satisfied after feeds. Um, so those would be the things I would, I would look for to see uh, whether there is actually faltering growth and um, low supply or not. So I think we've already we talked through some of the contributing the things that contribute to um, poor supply or poor milk transfer in the dyad. Um, in terms of treatment, so if there is a true poor supply, which can happen, although it's uncommon, um, initially the, the first thing to do is to see whether there, there is any supplementation going on um, because that can interrupt, interrupt supply demand. And then to increase supply basically just means increasing demand. So um, frequent breastfeeding and making sure the latch, there's nothing that's, um, that's contributing to a poor latch, such as a tongue tie or poor positioning or technique. So you need a good lactation consultant assessment. If it looks from the feed to you like the feed looks uncomfortable, the baby's squirming or pulling off, it's, there's clicking noise, there's obvious pain. Any of those things suggest that the latch is inefficient and the transfer won't be optimal. And if that's the case, you need to sort that out. But if those things all look good, the baby's latching well, everything looks comfortable, and the baby's maybe feeding for long periods of time, but you know, obviously not coming off satisfied and the, the, the weight gain is not as it should be, it could be that the supply is not optimal. And the way to increase that is initially just to increase demand on the breast. So that means I often tell women that they just need to bother their breasts as much as possible just to get them, um, just to get them um, more stimulated and kind of making more milk. So that can be, if they have a pump, it means breastfeeding and then pumping after feeds or between feeds. But if they can't be bothered doing that, because it is quite hard work to feed a baby and pump, especially if you've got one or two other small children that you're trying to look after as well. So sometimes I just tell women to do breast massage or hand express or when they're in the shower or they've been to the loo or whatever, just to kind of spend a few minutes just expressing, even if they're not collecting the milk, just to try and get um, a bit more breast stimulation. And then obviously put the baby to the breast as much as you can and skin to skin. Um, also releases hormones such as oxytocin that promote um, breastfeeding. So that is the initial treatment of poor supply, is just really good, efficient milk transfer as frequently as possible combined with pumping and hand massage or hand expressing. Um, and then review in five days to see how that is going. Uh, women often ask if there's anything else they can do. What so can we advise There them? are a number of herbal remedies out there and um, I tend to just be neutral about them. I don't promote them for women because I'm not aware of any good evidence around them. But I suspect they're probably not harmful. So, And some women do find them useful. Um, there are pharmaceutical galactagogues um, that people use, such as um, domperidone. But then the evidence of them is not good and often you're using it in a kind of off-the-list or off-piste sort of way. Um, so you need to be careful around that and women need to be made aware of the risks associated with using domperidone um, in a way it wasn't intended for, I guess, and often in much bigger doses than is used in other settings. Um, there is a potential for long QT um, with women if they're on domperidone, so it's good to get an ECG if you can before starting. But some women do have 
A good response to domperidone, and there hasn't been many studies on it, um, and the results are a little bit equivocal, but one study did suggest that women could fall into a group of responders or non-responders. So probably a short, like maybe a two-week trial of domperidone might be warranted in some women, but if it hasn't, if they haven't responded in that kind of time period, then it's not worth keeping them on it long term, in my opinion. And just thinking now about red flags when it comes to breastfeeding, when do we need to have our mind open to things that aren't going well for our patients? Well, first of all, I think, um, you know, feed is always best. So make sure the baby looks well and is getting enough nutrition to thrive. Um, so that, that would be the first thing. The second thing is that, that um, postnatal depression and anxiety is very prevalent in that community, particularly women presenting with nipple pain and issues around fussy babies, um, pain, faltering growth, often tied in with postnatal depression or anxiety. So always do a really good screen for that. Um, and which women need referral, Abby? And when would we refer them? Well, the problem is more who you refer them to, to be honest. I mean, there isn't a breastfeeding medicine speciality, unfortunately. Um, I'd like to see one one day. So there are, I think there's three or four um, medical specialists like myself who are also lactation consultants. And it also depends what you think the problem is. So if you think it's a problem with the baby, um, then refer to a paediatrician for assessment of the baby, particularly if it's a neurological problem, um, or if it's something to do with the baby's mouth or a, you know, a funny-looking palate or a, a tongue-tie um, it would be nice to refer to an ear, nose and throat paediatrician for that, but at the moment there aren't, they, there's no one in the public system that's, that I know of in the ADHB catchment that's accepting referrals along those lines. There may be in other DHBs. If it's a maternal problem, I mean obviously refer postnatal depression and anxiety on if, if you need to, to the maternal mental health services, but it may be worth just screening some women for um, thyroid function, um, and asking those, and if they have, or if they have a history of um, a large postpartum hemorrhage or prolonged bleeding, it, it may be worth ultrasounding those women for retained products because retained products can um, influence your, can um, reduce your supply. But it is very hard to know who to refer those women on to, and that's one of the reasons why I actually went into this and got my lactation consultant's um, qualification was because there just didn't seem to be anyone who had a medical knowledge and lactation knowledge and I was just finding that quite difficult with clients. And what about um, for GPs, where can we go to if we want to learn more about this? What are some good resources? So I would recommend the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. They've just renovated their um, web page and all their resources and I think it's a really fabulous resource now. They have um, protocols on a lot of pretty much any breastfeeding topic you can think of and they have I don't know maybe 50 podcasts on um, breastfeeding topics and, and all that's a free resource so that's a very good um, resource then um, in terms of directing women to resource there's um, La Leash League there's Starship's um, hospital sites got some breastfeeding advice um, Kelly Mum MOM is a really good resource with um, good information for mothers and uh, Dr Jack Newman is one of the 
um, few sort of medical experts around breastfeeding. He's a paediatrician from Canada and he has a website, um, Breastfeeding Inc, I think it's called, but if you Google Jack Newman, he has quite a few good um, information or handouts for parents on there as well. And Abby, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners today? So when you see a breastfeeding dyad, particularly in the first uh, maybe eight to ten weeks, always ask about breastfeeding um, and ask specific questions. You know, do you have any pain? Is your, is your um, baby settled after feeds? Do you have any concerns about your baby's weight gain? Um, have you had any trauma on your nipples? Do you just just ask um, open-ended questions as well around breastfeeding? Um, to make sure that women will give you that information. Because uh, I quite often see it starship babies presenting here with other problems, but then when you do ask specific questions around breastfeeding, there are actually a whole lot of issues around breastfeeding which are contributing to the, the presenting complaint. Thank you, Abby. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.